Genesis chapter 25, we continue on. And, and you know, I was thinking about something earlier this morning that I just want to say before we get any further. We're going to, continuing on in Genesis, have several case studies of people, of, of characters, of things, unbelievable things that people did. You think it was bad that Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister when she was his wife? It gets a lot worse. And we see uh, humanity in the struggle, and we see people failing and falling, and we see people doing good things as well. So there are a lot of very interesting characters. We're going to meet two of them this morning and consider them this morning, but let us never forget that the character we desire to emulate the most is that of the Lord Jesus. And it's always my intention, my desire to draw us back to Jesus and to think about Jesus and what does the word tell us of Jesus himself, but sometimes the characters can be quite impressive. You know, they can enter a room and they can suck up all the oxygen and, and, and they become the focus. So help me with this and let's together continue to, as much as we learn about these different people in the book of Genesis, that, that we always draw back to the Lord, draw back to Jesus, draw near to him. He's the one we need. Well, verse 21, picking up in chapter 25, reads that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, Wednesday night, we noted there's a double reference to prayer in that verse. That first, it says that Isaac prayed, but then it says the Lord answered, and yet the phrase answered there is literally the Lord was entreated of him. And his wife, Rebecca, conceived. The Lord was entreated of him, so he prayed and he was entreating. And when you see a double reference like that, the implication in the Bible is, this is some serious praying. This isn't a, a flight through the brain, a, a quickly passing thought, oh, I wish that my wife could be pregnant, Lord. This is intentional, and I, I said long-term, persistent prayer. That's what we said on Wednesday night. One thing I said offhanded, because there was so much else we were covering, was that I don't even know how long Isaac prayed. Well, guess what? We know exactly how long Isaac prayed. Kelly Shaleski uh, caught this, pulled me aside afterwards and said, I think we know, don't we? And pointed out these two verses. Look at verse 20. It says, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And if you look down in verse 26... Isaac, at the end of the verse, was 60 years old when she gave birth, 20 years. So we can assume that 20 years from when they got married to when they had their firstborn son, that Isaac was praying for a long, long time. If they tried to get pregnant in the first year and didn't, well, we'll keep trying. And in the second year, well, we'll keep, and the third year, he continued to pray. And the prayer lasted for some, I don't know, 15, 16, 18 years of married life. And I, I wanted to point that out and just go back and touch that even before we go on this morning for one reason. Prayer is not about the reply. It is for the relationship. Prayer is not for the reply. As so often we think that it is. We pray for something, we want an answer. We ask for something, we're looking for response. But prayer is not the reply, it's, it's the relationship, and the more we pray, the more time we get to spend with the Lord, which is the point of praying. 
And so I encourage you, if in your life you're praying over something or for something, and you're just not hearing response or getting the answer that you're looking for, keep praying and rejoice. Because the more you do so, the more you're with him. And the more you're with him, whether we recognize it or not, the more our character is changing. What I prayed earlier, that Jesus would make us like him, you wanna be like him, pray. And it does not matter what the response is. You pray, you entreat, you seek the Lord, and you stay in his presence. And as we are in his presence, you know what's happening? Life is germinating in us. A pregnancy, if you will, oh, maybe not like the birth of a baby, gentlemen, be thankful for that, but, but we are becoming more the spiritual men, the spiritual women that he's created us to be by being in his presence. And note this, the persistency we see of Isaac's prayer wasn't just about having a baby. It wasn't just about a pregnancy. There's something in this, and I've only begun this time through Genesis to see this. I didn't see this 16 years ago when we studied this the first time didn't recognize it, at least to the weight that I'm feeling it this time around, there's something that Abraham passed along to Isaac, and I believe Isaac would pass along to Jacob, not, however, to Esau. And it is the colossal worth of God's covenant. For Isaac to pray for the pregnancy of Rebekah was about the covenant. Through Isaac, your descendants, shall be named. And now Isaac and his wife cannot have descendants. What is he praying for? He's praying for the covenant. He's praying for the covenant. He's praying the promise of God. And that's a great point as well, that when we pray, rather than just praying for the needs of Rick, which I know you all pray for all the time, <laughs> rather than praying for the needs of self, how about praying the promises of God? Like, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. Like, Lord Jesus, may your word go out to all the earth. Like, Lord Jesus, would you save and seek the lost? Praying the promises of God, that's what I believe Isaac is doing. But read on, verse 22, but the children struggled together within her, so the answer to prayer was a hard pregnancy. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then I, am I, and I pointed out Wednesday, this is a fragmented sentence intentionally. It's written that way because that's the way Rebecca is struggling. What is, how come I, what? That's what's in, described here. And so what does Rebecca do? She went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Yaakov. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Isaac became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man 
living in tents. They duked it out in the womb (laughs) with Jacob reaching for first place. And he got it eventually. It's interesting that they are known as Jacob and Esau rather than Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first. Esau got out the womb first, Jacob striving behind him. The younger, by literal seconds, is now always named first. It's always the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau means hairy, which I always find funny and a little gross. For an infant, he was the uh, equivalent of a throw rug. He was born a walking carpet, something of a Wookiee child, I think. Jacob, by contrast, means to take by the heel or heel holder, heel catcher. Secondarily, the, the word akov in Hebrew means to supplant or to supersede another. But understand this, please get this, it's a neutral term in the Hebrew. It is not negative inherently. It's the context that decides if this idea of superseding is a bad thing or a good thing, a positive or a negative. Well, that depends on how the word is used. And we could call this story as I am. Oh, no, I didn't. I changed my mind on this. I was going to entitle this teaching Harry and the Heel Catcher. (laughs) I think two boys and a birthright is probably better. But it's a tale of two nations. It's an epic struggle. This is a civil war. And what's interesting to me is it's not a civil war between Jacob and Esau. They're going to patch things up later on. It's not even a civil war between Israel and Edom, though their struggle is epic and eternal, or at least historical. It is a civil war that has much deeper roots, a struggle that goes far below what sometimes we think when we read the story of Jacob and Esau. Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus said, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And we see it continuing on the earth today as, of course, man is evolving to be the best form of himself. We still see nation in conflict with nation, kingdom against kingdom, society against society, and even within societies, the conflicts go on and on and on because this conflict is even more personal. Turn over to another Yaakov, the book of James. Turn back to James chapter four just for a moment this morning. James chapter four, as we pointed out when we studied the book of James, and I find it a little frustrating as a teaching pastor because James is not James. His name was not James. It's not Yamas. It's Yaakov. And so really this is the book of Yaakov and Long, long time ago, translators just decided, well, it's easier to say James. We'll do what we call an English equivalent of Jacob, and we'll make it James, even though the English equivalent of Yaakov is Jacob. Anyway, it's one of my little pet peeves. So we're in uh, Yaakov chapter 4, verse 1. He writes, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Which means if I'm in conflict with my brother Paul, the real issue is not Paul or Rick, and we're not in conflict right now. We're good. But the real issue, should we be in contention with one another, is not Paul or Rick. The real issue is a conflict that's deeper inside of both of us. It's my conflict that causes me to be in conflict with someone else. It's Paul's conflict, Marie tells me, that causes him to be in conflict. I'm kidding. Just stay with me. Y'all with me? It's the conflict within. It's the struggle within each one of us that bursts out and causes us to struggle with one another. Causes us to have conflict with other people. That's the source that wages war. It's our pleasures waging war on our members. You lust and you do not have. You commit murder. You are envious. You cannot obtain. You fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. (laughs) Do you not know that Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I remind you, what was Abraham called? A friend of God rather than a friend of the world. It's gonna be one or the other. You're either gonna be a friend of the world or you'll be a friend of God. But watch this, verse five He says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And that can either be he jealously desires his spirit that has been made to live within us, or he jealously desires our spirit that has been created to live within us. I lean toward, I believe that he's talking about his spirit. You know why? Because Yaakov here is talking to Christians. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to the non-believer. He's talking to the believer who is now filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Harry and the heel catcher is not just a story of a family feud, an external problem. It is a story of the civil war within us all. Keep that in mind as we look at it this morning. We're gonna deal with two issues on the surface and then we're gonna come back and dig underneath a little bit. The two issues are the boys and the birthright. The boys and the birthright. First, the boys. Looking at verse 27 back in the story. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. And that verse alone speaks volumes. Volumes more, perhaps, than we may have thought. You see, Esau, Esau comes along. He's a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He's a man's man. Oh, 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 Esau. He's called a skillful hunter. You know the last time we saw that phrase, it was applied to a man named Nimrod. Skillful hunter. He's hairy. He's red. A man of the field. So literally, he's an outdoorsman. He's that kind of guy, like I said, a man's man. Jacob, however, is a peaceful man. (laughs) Living in tents. He's a homebody. He's kind of quiet. People think this implies him sitting home reading Julia Childs. (laughs) 
the art of French cooking, and knitting, perhaps watching the home shopping network. Listen, we have some seriously wrong preconceived notions about Jacob that if we look, do not fit the biblical text. And I am speaking against a younger me who preached Jacob this way 16 years ago. This is not Jacob. Esau, yes, is into the wild. He's out and he's away from family. And that's the implication of this man who is a man of the field, a man who's away, a man who doesn't want to be around family and and kith and kin, a man who's not among the tents. Jacob is living in tents, which doesn't mean he stayed indoors all the time. What it means is he stayed near the family. What it means is he was close to the family unit. What it means is he was a sojourning shepherd like his father and like his grandfather. Jacob takes after Esau, who takes after Abraham, living in tents, sojourning shepherding near to the family unit. And what this implies here is that he lived an ordered and a quiet life. And biblically, brothers, biblically, this is the ideal. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 10, Paul says, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. There is strength in this kind of quietness. Not the macho sweat of a man trying to prove himself. You know, making a big noise, beating his chest, blowing his own horn, hailing his mighty conquest out there to prove himself to the world. That's Esau. Jacob is not like this. Ultimately, isn't it interesting that it's not Esau who wrestles with God and prevails, it's Jacob. That's strength. That is power. Jacob is no wimp. And note this, it says Jacob was a peaceful man. And that word peaceful is the word tam or tamim, T-A-M, if you're writing it down. It means finished. He was a finished man. He was a complete man. Or we might say he was together. But in the Hebrew scriptures, this word, Tom, is first used of Noah. Genesis 6, 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless, Tamim, in his time. Noah walked with God. That's the first time we see the word, blameless, Tom, T-A-M. And then Job, chapter one, verse eight, it's used of Job. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. A blameless man, a T-A-M, a Tom or Tamim man who's upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Psalm 18, 25 speaks of both God and a righteous man saying, with the kind you show yourself kind, with the blameless Tamim, you show yourself blameless, Tom, And that's the word that is used here to describe Jacob. Not a quiet man reading home design magazines. No, this is a blameless man. This is a righteous man. How many of you have ever thought of Jacob as blameless (laughs) or righteous or godly at all? 
You know, it just doesn't fit the narrative of Jacob's motives that we've all been taught, if you've been taught the story. We've all assumed, well, Jacob's the, he's the conniver. He's the wily guy. And you might even say, well, he's about to steal the birthright, isn't he? Is he? The entire life of Jacob can actually be neatly summed up. If you go to the prophet Hosea, I'll just read this to you. Hosea chapter 12 describes him this way. Hosea 12, verse three, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. Note there, the angel and God are used synonymously. He wept and he sought his favor, God's favor. And he, that is Jacob, found him, God, at Bethel. And there, God spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. It's so interesting to me when Hosea, the prophet, writes that. He says, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. That's Yaakov. And in his maturity, he contended with God. That's Yisrael. Yaakov and Yisrael are both used, both names of Jacob are used in Hosea chapter 12, verse three. And down in verse 12 of Hosea chapter 12, he does the same thing, he uses both names again. He says, now Yaakov fled to the land of Aram and Israel worked for a wife and for a wife he kept sheep. Now if you're reading that, you would notice that sheep is in italics because it's not there. So literally it says, for a wife, he kept, and the word means kept watch. And for the rest of the book of Genesis, chapter 25 through chapter 50, we're gonna see Jacob doing this. We're gonna see Jacob keeping watch. One way or another, he seems to always be keeping watch. But Jacob is not who we thought he was. He is described rather as a blameless guy, a blameless man, a tum living in the tents. But there's something else here instructive for us about the boys. If you look at verse 28, it says, now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, or literally, he had game in his mouth. <laughs> but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac was loved, or Esau was loved by Isaac because, that is for what he did. That is for how he had proven himself. That is, it's love by sweat equity. Jacob was loved by Rebecca, period. She just loved him. It says nothing about what Jacob did to earn that love, no reason. He was just loved, which is the way God loved Jacob. He just loved him. No reason for it. And this is a hard lesson for us to learn, especially for a lot of us men's men. It's hard to consider being loved, not because, but just to be loved. 1 John 4.10 says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. When did he do that? Before you were born. So before you were born, there was nothing you could do to earn the love of God as he came into the world to love you from birth and forever. That's the love of God. It is not contingent on your behavior or mine. 
It's contingent on his nature. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in the same way, Israel, Jacob, was loved by God, period, not because of what he had done. Malachi chapter one, verse two. The Lord is speaking to the people in their contention and in their rebellion, and and he says to them, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? So God takes them back. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Malachi prophesies God's love of Jacob and hatred of Esau was a divine choosing. He just did it. He just loved Jacob. Now, you might say, but that's not fair. And we talked about this for a bit on Wednesday night. It's not fair that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. God choosing one over the other. Listen, if you wanna dig deeper, go back and listen to the teaching. I don't have time to do it this morning. But for this morning, I'm just gonna say one thing about this. Understand, God loved and chose Jacob not because he was blameless, although we can make a case that he was a somewhat righteous man, much more than perhaps we had thought. But God chose and loved Jacob because God is love, period. What does that say about Esau? Listen, the point is this, that the line of Jacob is the one through which salvation would come to all people. That's why he loves Jacob. Because God's intention was not only to love the man, not only to love his offspring, but to love all who would come to faith in God through Jesus Christ at the end of that line. That the love of Jacob is about God's love for the world because the only way salvation was gonna come to the world was through the line of Jacob as God had prophesied. Are you with me on that? This is a huge point. And it's important to understand and comprehend. Jew and Gentile alike which means people in the line of Esau would be loved by God. God would still bless Esau, by the way. The point is he loved Jacob because his love had to get into and through the world. God loved Jacob, I guess we could say, because God loves you and God loves me. What about the other boy, Esau? Jacob and Esau are about as different, you know, as two brothers can be, as different as spirit and flesh. Keep that in mind, because throughout the Bible, anytime you see Esau or his offspring, Edom, you see a picture of the flesh. That's what Esau always represents, the flesh, whatever Esau, he wanted. Verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff, therefore I am famished. That sounds so British. I don't know why, it just does to me. (laughs) Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. The translators have literally niced up that verse. (laughs) If you were to read it as it's, as it really comes off in the Hebrew language, first of all, there's no please. He doesn't come in, please. What he says, literally, give the best translation I can, give me a guzzle of some of the red stuff, that red stuff. 
I'm serious. That's how it's written. The Bible actually repeats red stuff. Because that's what he said. Give me some of the red stuff. That red stuff. That's what he's saying. It's brutish. It's dull-headed. As Esau blurts out, I got heat. Give me some of that. And, and the word there that we see that they translate, swallow. Let me have a little swallow. No, no, no. The word in the Hebrew, halite, is gulp, guzzle, devour. Give me a gulp of that red stuff. The red stuff. <laughs> the old rabbis used this exact word to describe cramming food down your throat. This is a famished man. Esau's in a stew. I mean, this guy's seeing red. All he cares about is feeding this voracious hunger as he comes in from hunting. He just wants to eat as fast as he can. And I wonder, would it have killed Esau to wait 20 or 30 minutes? You know, hang on. It's not done yet. He's giving the red stuff. He thought he was going to die. I mean, he really does. Verse 32, he says that. I'm about to die. Yeah, sit down. He's the hungry man, you know, for whom they invented the microwavable meal. I'm sure it was for Esau's sake. And listen, Esau, he, he passed on this whole attitude, this, this feeding frenzy fervor. He passes along to a fleshly family the people of Edom. And again, Edom means red, and from Esau comes Edom. He's called Edom. That's his nickname. He becomes the father of the Edomites, a constant source of stress for Jacob's family, Israel, and a people who, on the whole, despise the birthright. And we're gonna see them again and again through the Bible, a bloody thorn in Israel's side and a picture of the flesh ongoing. I'll give you some examples quickly. If you want to note these, jot them down. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 22. The Edomites will refuse passage to the Israelites and Moses as they are coming back into the promised land. They are related. They will not let them pass through their land. They come out brandishing swords. You will not come this way. And so Moses and the Israelites have to go all the way around Edom to make their way into the land of promise because their own relatives won't allow it. In Exodus, or, or, sorry, 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22, another example of this, there's an Edomite named Doeg who is a servant of Saul and he slaughters 85 priests of Levi simply because they're trying to hunt down David who's fleeing from Saul. Doeg, the Edomite. And then we have the entire prophecy of Obadiah which is against Edom. Ultimately, in Matthew chapter two, we read about the last recorded Edomite in the Bible, a megalomaniacal man of the flesh named Herod. Herod was an Edomite. No wonder I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, God says. This is a people of the flesh, a picture of the flesh. And they have an infamous place at the end of all things, I'll just read this to you, Isaiah chapter 34, on the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, he sets foot in a place called Basra, which is in Edom. Check this out, Isaiah 34, verse five, for my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom, 
and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat for the day for the lord has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of zion man that's a whole teaching in and of itself perhaps the lord will allow we'll get back there at some point but it is a judgment listen a judgment note this upon edom but not the people of edom the edomites but on the land of edom why because in Edom, Israel's hiding out during the tribulation. In Edom, the warring armies are trying to take out what's left of the people of God. In Edom, the battle is fierce. From Edom all the way up to Megiddo, that whole swath of land. And Jesus comes first, apparently, to Edom. And there, the sword is satiated with blood. And just, just notice the language that Isaiah uses the sword is filled with blood, sated with fat. He talks about the fat of the kidneys. He talks about further down, the dust greasy with fat, soaked with blood. It is a visceral, fleshly picture. Because the flesh can do one thing. Get this, the flesh can do one and only one thing. It can die. But the spirit, the spirit can live. Esau is the fleshly father of the Edomites, setting the standard for his family to follow in his greasy, meaty footsteps. And I'm hammering away on this just so that we understand, so that we're looking as we go forward. There is this ongoing civil war throughout the scriptures between flesh and spirit. And so we have this picture of Esau, and we have this picture of Jacob that translates all the way through the Bible to the great civil war. By the way, the last time that Esau is named in the Bible, it's in direct contrast to what we call the great hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, describing all these faithful men and women who trusted and followed the Lord. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, and it says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a meal. And that's the last time we hear of Esau in the Bible, and the word attached to him is godless, babelos, which means profane. No profane person who forsakes or despises his own birthright. That's the last time we see Esau. Guess what the last time we see Jacob is? In the great hall of faith. The chapter before, Hebrews eleven twenty one. by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. What's the point of that? Listen, the homeboy knew the value of the birthright. We see at the beginning of his life, fighting for first position. We see him coming out of the womb, and then we see him with this whole birthright story with a different attitude toward the birthright, and then all the way at the very end of his life, what is Jacob doing? What is Israel doing? He's blessing 
his sons based on the birthright. And I believe he understood something of its worth. Well, we talked about the boys. Now consider the birthright. Verse 31 of Genesis 25. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Okay, so get back into the scene. Esau just said, give me a dollar, that dollar. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what is the use then of the birthright to me? Esau didn't care beans for it. Lentil beans. And that was Esau's great folly. I mean, all kidding aside, he saw a bowl of lentil soup as more valuable than the covenant of God. I'm beginning to wonder if Jacob didn't really desire the birthright from the womb. If there wasn't something in this quiet man, this tamim, this blameless man that understood something about this birthright because he came out grasping for it, he understood the value of it, he would pursue it with his whole life because the birthright meant everything. We don't understand birthright in American culture like they understood birthright. Even today in Israel, they understand birthright a little more than we do. The whole idea that it was the positional status of the firstborn son, that it meant authority, it meant headship, it meant responsibility over the whole family once the father would pass on. That the birthright gave a double portion to the firstborn, Deuteronomy 21, 17, a double portion of the inheritance. Why? Because it was his to oversee and care for the rest of the family. This is a big deal. In fact, it was so significant that the firstborn of all Israel, man and animal, spiritually and physically, belonged to God. He said, the firstborn, that's mine. And so the firstborn of all animals born among the people were sacrificed. Firstborn child, however, because God doesn't do human sacrifice except when it's himself. The firstborn child was redeemed. Numbers 3.13, all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified myself to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Firstborn is mine, he says. And so firstborn animals, as I said, were offered on the altar. But in Numbers 18, God commanded the firstborn humans to be redeemed for five shekels of silver. If you've been studying with us, you've already heard. Silver, silver denotes redemption in the Bible. And that's primarily why, because God said, you pay five shekels of silver to the temple and you redeem your firstborn. The firstborn that is mine has now been redeemed. What a picture. But the firstborn belonged to the Lord. The birthright was theirs. And the most significant thing about this birthright, this birthright, not just any birthright, but this particular birthright that went from Abraham to Isaac and now would go to Isaac's firstborn son, I think Jacob knew this at some level, that it was the line of the covenant promise. Not just any birthright, but the covenant birthright. It wasn't just a birthright, it was the birthright. 
This is so big, even for us, here we are, some three and a half, almost 3,700 years later. This is so big to us today that the birthright carried the covenant which carried the promise of, of the Christ, ultimately. The hope of salvation which is why this Abrahamic covenant from the first place is so vitally important. It's the promised blessing that will go out to the whole world through this lineage. The covenant line to and through Jesus, the Messiah. I read it to you again, Matthew chapter one, verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac, either the fa Isaac the father of Jacob, not Esau, Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers all the way down to Matthew 1:16. Joseph the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This birthright was everything. This birthright is everything to you and to me, even this morning, and to the man quietly, blamelessly, righteously looking forward, this matters more than anything else. So Jacob, yes, desired the birthright. But Esau was stuck in the meat of the moment. All Esau could do was see to the very next meal and its immediacy, verse 33. And Jacob, or, yeah, Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his Birthright. Note this, the biblical evaluation of the story finds fault with Esau, not Jacob. Calls out Esau as the problem. Doesn't say a word about how oh, Jacob, that wily, conniving coyote. <laughs> uh -uh. Esau despised his birthright. What does that tell us about Jacob? He wanted the birthright. Bible doesn't say that Jacob suckered his brother. Doesn't say that he stole the birthright. Later he'll steal the blessing. I understand that. We'll talk about that when we get there. But what the Bible declares here is that Esau despised the birthright. That's a heavy word. In the Hebrew, yibetz. Yibetz means to disdain, to treat as worthless, or to hold in contempt. This birthright meant nothing to Esau. He really could give a rip, he could care less. And so he stuffed his red face and he walked away from his own birthright completely indifferent. Jacob and Esau. Why does this distinction between the two boys matter so much? Because there's so much more at stake than these two boys. We suddenly see the birthright itself rises to the top of this story as the thing of greatest significance. But it's more than that. What does the scripture say? What did the other Jacob say? Chapter four, verse five, he said, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. We've got two boys and a birthright. One is blameless, loved by God. The other is carnal, hated by God. There's the birthright that's promised by God. One boy is the spiritual man. 
The other, the carnal man. One deeply desires the birthright. The other one couldn't care less. And you know what? We're not talking about believers and non-believers here. We're talking to believers. The issue of the Jacob and Esau struggle is not a struggle between people who believe and people who don't. You see, because people who don't believe don't have the spirit. People who don't believe, good, bad, or indifferent, are just carnal. It's people who believe that enter into the civil war. People who believe who have both spirit and flesh at war with one another. This is a story for believers to understand. Think about this. Both Jacob and Esau, both the man who pictures spiritual things, the man who pictures carnal things, both were fighting together where? Inside the womb of Rebekah. Rebekah, based on Genesis 24, is a picture of the bride, the church. This is a battle going on within. This is a battle inside the believer. This is the civil war that you and I face. I have faced it every day since the very day that the Spirit came to dwell in me. I have fought this battle my entire life. I still fight it, and so do you. Believers in Jesus, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven. And if you don't believe in Jesus, turn in your Bible to Romans chapter seven. <laughs> and if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're sitting there going, did he just say I was carnal? Yeah. At least you got that going for you. You don't have to worry, you just do it, you know, just do whatever feels good. That's what the world says, right? If it feels good, do it. If it pleasures me, that's what I want. You know, I'll try not to hurt other people, but really what I want at the end of the day is what I want, it's my thing. <laughs> Earlier we were singing, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than this right now. Than what? Singing hallelujah. Okay, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I can, you know what, even as a believer, I can think of a lot of things that in the moment could be better. You know, I could sing hallelujah or I could have a big slice of chocolate cake and a cold milk. I'm telling you, that's a struggle. Hallelujah, <laughs> give me some of that brown stuff. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kidding around here, but you know what? Truly, there is nothing better than a hallelujah once you have the spirit of God because that's your breath. That's where we take in full what matters and what's important, and that, that sets the heart right. When I say hallelujah, it sets everything right. But, but if, I, if I don't have the spirit, if I'm not following Jesus, Give me the cake. Give me the meat. You tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't that the way it is? And what I'm saying is you come into a relationship with Jesus and suddenly a war begins. We know, Romans 7, verse 14, that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. This is Paul writing this. Any one of us could declare this. I'm a flesh. I know this. What I am doing I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. Oh, the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. The good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil I do not want. Can I just see a show of hands who feels that way or who has ever felt that way? Some of you are going. <laughs> if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then that the principle of evil or the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law. In the members of my body, we could call it a Jacob and Esau law. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death. See, Paul's not a victim. He's just declaring what is true. Describing the civil war in the belly of every one of us. As Rebecca, the church, the twins are at war of flesh and of spirit. I love that Paul then says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing better than singing hallelujah to that. Paul would also write over in Galatians chapter five, verse 16, I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Seems so simple. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And then Paul goes on. If you read the passage, and please do this on your own time, homework, Galatians chapter five. Think this through during the week because then Paul continues to contrast the deeds of the flesh, giving a whole list of fleshly, carnal deeds, and then he contrasts that with the fruit of, not fruits, the fruit singular of the spirit. Why is it singular? Because it belongs to the spirit. Because it's the spirit's work in you. The deeds of the flesh are many and they're our work in ourselves. The fruit of the spirit is only that which can be cultivated by the spirit of God living within you, dwelling within me. And finally, Paul rounds out Galatians 5, verse 24 saying, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So how do I do that? Well, first off, you gotta get the birthright. And to get the birthright, you gotta start with the right birth. John chapter three, verse three, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. 
So you get born of the Spirit, born again. How? Simply by giving your heart to Jesus, handing the reins over, accepting him to be in authority and control, the Lord of your life. You get new birth, new life, and then you embrace the birthright that comes of the right birth. You embrace the birthright. Embrace the birthright. Well, how exactly do I do that? Listen, what was it that made Jacob at such an early stage in his life perfect? Tom. Complete, the complete man. Blameless, if you will. What made Jacob such that that's how the Bible describes him as a perfect, blameless man? Well, if you struggle with that, simply because, again, we've been fed so much information about Jacob and his character, what made Noah blameless? What made Job blameless? In all three cases, whether it's Noah, Job, or Jacob, it's not perfection as in they were sinless, it's righteousness, it's that their hearts were toward God. They didn't always do the right thing, but their hearts were toward God. Let me say it again, their heart was toward God. Now think about this. Jacob grew up under Isaac, right? So he heard the stories, the stories of Abraham, his grandfather's sojourning. He probably heard Abraham himself share some of those stories. Isaac sharing the stories of growing up, living in tents, moving about place to place, shepherding, caring. He heard about the visions of God that Abraham had had. He knew these of El Roy, of El Elyon, of El Shaddai, El Elyon. He no doubt heard the story of Mount Moriah and what took place that day, God's provision, Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord provides. It is apparent that well before Jacob had ever had a single vision of his own, he was a believer. He believed God. He could not be called a blameless man if his heart was not toward God. Not a perfect man, but blameless in that he had faith, in that he trusted the Lord. Well, how do we know that Jacob had faith in God? He valued the birthright. Did you ever ask that question? You ever wonder why the birthright meant so much to Jacob? Why he would ever come up with such a thing? when his drooling, sweaty brother came hairily into the tent, give him some of that. Why is the first thought on Jacob's mind, sell me your birthright? You want this too? That's the cost. Why did this matter so much to Jacob? He valued it. He understood the value in it, the worth. Let me ask you, those of us who are born again, do we value or do we despise the birthright? See, when the flesh wins the day, that's what we've just done. We've despised the birthright. When the spirit wins the day, we have held on to the worth and the value of the birthright. Think about this. Esau grew up hearing the same stories Jacob did. Esau learned the same thing had the same parents, had the same background, the same heritage. He would have heard everything that his brother heard, and yet for Esau, pfft, it's not worth anything. 
One Bible commentator, Barnhouse, said, history shows that men prefer illusions to realities. Choose time rather than eternity. And the pleasures of sin for the moment rather than the joys of God forever. Men will read trash rather than the word of God. And they will adhere to a system of priorities that leaves God out of their lives. Multitudes of men will spend more time shaving than on their spirits. Multitudes of women give more minutes to their makeup than to the life of the eternal spirit. And he says men still sell their birthright for a mess of pottage. Listen, born again, followers of Jesus, those of you who, like me, struggle with these things, there is a clear way to honor and to value our birthright in Jesus. How do we do that? God tells us, back in the verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. And that's the key. The older, the flesh, Esau. The younger, the spirit. The natural man is the older. The spiritual man or woman is the younger. My friends, which is it gonna be? Genesis 25, 23. The Lord said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. Now we know historically that will be Israel, but in you, in me, which one's stronger? Which one, spirit or flesh? Because God says the key to all of this is that the spirit commands the authority, that the flesh serves the spirit. See, the flesh isn't always a bad thing. The flesh that shows up in the hospital and prays for someone. The flesh that serves people in this world, the flesh that goes out of its way to act and to do things for other people. We have a, a gentleman who, who doesn't attend the bridge, a Catholic friend of ours, wonderful man, found out we were adopting Christopher, found out Cheryl was looking into how to do some build-in bunk beds in, in, in David's room so David and Christopher would have their beds, and he came to us and said, hey, I wanna build those. Starting about the end of October, he's been working down in that room at my house for four months. You know what that is? That's the flesh serving the spirit. That is the older serving the younger. He did it simply, and we're like, well, well no, no, we, I mean, he's like, I just wanna do this. Just, can I just do this? That is the flesh serving spirit. One people is gonna be stronger than the other. The question is, which is it gonna be? The older serving the younger? Or are you gonna allow the younger to serve the older? Which is the flesh taken over. The younger is my born again self who I am now in Jesus Christ. And so the story of Jacob and Esau is a story of the younger surpassing the older, of the younger stepping up and loving the birthright where the older despises the birthright. The flesh despises the covenants of God. The flesh doesn't really wanna have anything to do with God. The flesh recoils in guilt and shame. And I'm talking about in the believer when we find ourselves in a place or doing a thing that is flesh feeding and someone mentions the spirit. Ugh. 
The flesh despises the birthright. The spirit will do anything to take hold of it. We have in Jesus such an amazing birthright, don't we? Have we not heard and read and studied and thought and and comprehended how absolutely overwhelming our birthright is? An eternal thing, amazing, waiting, filled, Paul writes Ephesians 1, 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he even says, those are yours right now as well as then. Our birthright. And so the Lord, I believe this morning, to you and to me, is imploring us, don't despise the birthright for immediate gratification. Don't give up the birthright for a mess of pottage. No, instead, value it, honor it with your life. Lord Jesus, we need your spirit to work in us on this because we, we do need the fruit that comes only of your working in us and bringing about spiritual things and spiritual hunger and spiritual focus. A desire for our birthright that that itself supersedes, that goes beyond our desire for anything of flesh. There's a serious issue, Father, because it, it truly does speak to the heart of every believer in the room this morning. And it calls to any non-believer who may be in the room this morning as well that there is something of such immense value. It is worth everything in our lives. Lord Jesus, I ask you to convict our hearts of this truth. And Father, if there is a mess of pottage that we need to repent of this morning, would you bring forth repentance in our hearts? A sorrow, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Father, I pray that no one will just sit in sorrow, a worldly sorrow that just leads to death, but that you would cause us to consider where we are with you and how much we have either valued, Lord, or devalued your covenant promise that brought Jesus into the world. May we value you, Lord Jesus, above all things, Forgive us and cleanse us where we have not. And open our hearts this morning, Lord, to receive the work of your spirit that bears fruit rather than the deeds of the flesh. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.